Hello, I'm Donna Edda, and this is the Interested Podcast, a show that shares our collective wisdom to inspire health, love, and personal growth. Today, I'm going to talk to Jasmine Nuns. This episode is a part of the COVID-19 series that I'm creating to explore different perspectives to help me make sense and bring clarity during a time that feels unfamiliar. Jasmine spent her childhood climbing trees, digging for earthworms, creating magical potions from fruits and berries foraged in her local village. Not the typical upbringing in Hong Kong. She's the founder of Kambali, a coach, and Hong Kong's first nature and forest therapy guide. In this conversation, we will invite you to explore the idea of a kind of rite of passage that we're experiencing right now, the grief that we are feeling, and the impact of the external world versus our old wild knowing that is within us. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. It is truly food for the soul. I hope you get something out of it. Without further ado, here is Jasmine Nunn's. Hi, Jasmine. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to talk about something that I feel really connected to. I know it's a cliche, but we're talking about grounding and trusting our innate wisdom. Everywhere in the world, we're going through uncertain times, but it's a new time. You're absolutely right, you know, with, with the way that our society looks at the moment and how it's sort of evolved since January, um, how we interact with one another on, on a face-to-face level and even on, you know, an online virtual level, that's, it's almost like learning, learning a new way to be with each other every single day. And it's been, it's been exhausting (laughs) to be honest, but what it's also been really helpful in, in teaching me and guiding me is to form my boundaries around what is okay for me and then also being really upfront about requesting uh, that other people share what is what feels right and what feels comfortable for them and really being conscious of the fact that you know we're, we're all experiencing this together but we're also all experiencing it in our own individual ways and so to be really to be really mindful of what is going to be supportive and nurturing for somebody else as well as for for myself so really going back to what you were referring to and and kind of things kind of coming on hold and yeah so a lot of my gatherings regular ones especially like the song circles the forest bathing some of the bushcraft gatherings the wild swims some of that has continued and then some have had to cancel because people haven't signed up uh, and there's been also a sense of hesitation on on my part of you know is this socially responsible if I continue to gather in these ways on the one hand it's been quiet on that front and then on the other hand with the schools having been sort of shifting from online learning since January I've actually had requests from parents who are starting to see, you know, after a couple of months of having their children at home and, and learning through online school and virtual lessons is that their postures are starting to change. Their attitudes or the personality or, you know, just really seeing how they're spending time from 8.30 in the morning to sometimes 4.30 in the afternoon in front mm. of a screen you know, we're all doing the best that we can in 
staying connected with whether it's our academics or with our community, with our work. And, and it's incredible that we have this technology that's still able to, able to connect us with each other and especially for children and the teachers who are doing these amazing and creative jobs of finding ways to communicate and keep learning interesting online and yet there is that that contact element that is really missing and and the need especially for our children who are in some ways really far more connected to their wild earth bodies than we are that they need to be able to move and to stretch and to to be out in nature and, and wild spaces, open spaces, uh, so that they can come back into their bodies. And so in that sense, it's been really a gift and a privilege to be able to guide girls, mostly. Do you want to share why you choose to work with girls in particular? I'm a girl. <laughs> I identify with being woman, with being female. And having worked in this sort of outdoor industry let's say for many years and you know running nature camps and guiding yeah holiday camps out in wild spaces getting into bushcraft and learning these skills these ancient skills that our ancestors would have practiced I noticed in myself and in the places that I was learning that it was very male dominated and the stereotype or the perception of fire making, whittling, knife craft, um, shelter building, uh, even just going out into an outdoor space, even the clothing that is available for women, there's far less options for that for, for girls and for women because it is uh, stereotypically seen as a, a much more male-dominated realm. And going into that space, I wasn't conscious of it in in the start, but I was noticing comments that I would receive from males and and females and really you know the stereotype the gender stereotypes that were placed on women and girls and how it was a surprise I was like cool so you can make your own fire and to me I just thought like oh that's a little you know condescending or you know how come that's a surprise that a woman or a girl is is tending to fire and you know in working with a lot more women and girls it's really interesting how unconsciously and how easily we give our power away. You know, when I'm guiding bushcraft gatherings and teaching women how to bring fire about through primitive skills. And so fire by friction, you know, literally rubbing sticks together or um, using flint and steel. A lot of women comment on, you know, how like they wonder to themselves, why is it that I've never done this? And, and they say, oh, it's mostly because, you know, my husband's or my brothers or my dad, you know, they used to do the fire. And not that that's a, a bad thing. We're not saying that an imbalance, although in some cases there are, but the ways in which we unconsciously give our power away to whether it's the, the other gender or another individual, whenever we give our powers away and not even know it. Uh, that's what I found really fascinating about getting more into bushcraft skills and really that it was such a direct way of connecting back onto the earth. And yet for women and girls in particular, there was, there seemed to be this physical barrier and the societal stereotype or conditioning that held girls into, no, 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 we, we do things differently and we dress differently. Can you share your first experience with learning a bushcraft, starting your own fire for the first time? Do you remember 
who taught you? I don't remember the first fire that I started, but I will share that one of the quite significant memories that I had was actually in learning to become a forest school teacher. And a lot of the experiences that I'd had in learning and training to become a forest school leader, I realized that this is what I did as a kid. I'm basically being given permission to play in the way that I did as a child and the way that I would break sticks and see which one was stronger to be a spear. You know, if I would practice that I was going hunting for something or if it was climbing up different trees and seeing which which tree was going to be the best to build a tree house in like all of these these skills and this awareness that i had built up as with the experiences that i had had as a child growing up in hong kong that i didn't realize were actually able to be transferred into my life as an adult you know and whether or not it's that you go out and you still practice bushcraft as an adult but i realized when i got on the mtr and I'm dodging people. And, you know, we're dodging people far more now in, in the city than we were a couple, well, a year ago. But I noticed that the way that I move in, you know, on the streets in Mong Kok is the same way that I would move when I was climbing a tree and someone else was on the same branch as me. And I needed to learn, we both needed to learn how to do this little dance around the branch so that we wouldn't knock each other off. And so the practical skills that I gained unconsciously as a child, I was still applying them in my life and living in, in an urban environment like Hong Kong. One of the, the experiences that I remember still very clearly was the moment that I got taught how to whittle my own knife from a stick. And I thought that it was, it was just the best thing ever you know, holding this stick in my hand and feeling going, you know, from the whole process of really, understanding where the stick came from and what type of wood was okay to harvest, uh, what was going to be sustainable, not just to, to use for myself, but also what impact does it have on the tree? If we're cutting a branch off the tree, does it actually help the tree continue to grow in a way that gives it more life and more energy, or does it actually take away from the tree? And so, you know, really developing that interaction that we have with the natural environment. And then really learning to appreciate my hands in a very, very different way, creating from what came to me as a, as literally just a stick, a twig really, and then transforming that through learning with the, the, with the wood, with the stick itself, what it was that it wanted to be and turning that into a knife, which I still have. I can show you actually. Yes, please. So this is the knife. Oh, wow. First knife that I ever carved. And That's yeah. beautiful. And it's still, it is that creation that we have. And it's a co-creation, what I say, with the natural environment, because it's not just about us. It's really listening to, like I said, what the wood wants to be, what the grass wants to be we're giving it a second life and we're giving it a tool and a different journey that it can kind of come, come with us and guide us. And that was a really, really important and magical moment that we're really bringing that interaction with the natural environment back and through our, through our hands as well as through our hearts. I want to share my story on um, how I found you actually. I was actually looking up 
rites of passage for my daughters. And I was, I'm planning, you know, when they turn 12, 13, whatever age it is, that I wanted to go through the ceremony of mm. coming, coming of age, right? And it's really, like you said, they have a lot of ceremonies for boys, but very few that I know of for girls. And that's why I was researching. And then when I found that you were running some workshops, I was just so excited. But then I saw that you were doing this wild women waterfall hikes. And I told you this before, it was like this invisible thread that was just pulling me towards you. In a sense, I have this deep sense of longing to go back to nature. And without diverting too far, bringing the conversation back to the rites of passage, I feel like we're all kind of going through some sort of transition right now. Yeah, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> rites of passage. It's interesting because when I speak about this, there's a lot of people who, who understand and, and who have, we're all familiar with, with the term rites of passage, but the types of rites of passage that we may have experienced would be very different. And, and the understanding of what that kind of looks like may be very different for, for different people. And so I'll share my perception, what I feel like is maybe the dominant perception of what rites of passage looks like. It's still a lot more alive in indigenous cultures. Uh, rites of passage for young people translated into much more of a, a boy to manhood process. And interestingly, in studying some of the eco-psychology and eco-therapy work that I've done, uh, there have been authors who've really addressed the environmental crisis that we're in at the moment and have been for a while now, down to the fact that in modern society, we no longer have rites of passage for our young people. And as a result, we're tran the transition from young person to teenager to adulthood, the lines are completely blurred. And there hasn't ever been a marking, a ritual or a ceremony that says you are now stepping into this next threshold. You are now, you've crossed that line and now you are coming into your power, to your purpose and to your belonging in this world. And you will now continue to walk through your life with that power, that purpose and that belonging and that sense of stewardship and responsibility to, to caretake for the place that we call home. Um, and so as a result of having no longer had these rites of passage held for us, we walk through this world through in adult bodies, but we still have the mentality of a child. Hmm. And we see this a lot, unfortunately, especially in a lot of world leaders, you know, really, you know, the kicking and screaming and stomping our feet when we don't get what we want and the demand, the entitlement you know, a lot of these characteristics we forgive in children as we're learning through and being guided by our mentors, our parents, our guardians. And yet there are a whole bunch of adults walking through this world, desperately seeking this, I am exactly where I need to be and where I want to be right now in this place and time. And that can often come through a really, really, really powerful sense through rites of passage if we look at the, the similarities and the commonalities between rites of passages all over the world, uh, there's a sense of firstly separation. And so often that separation, if we're looking at it from an, an indigenous point of view, the separation might come from separation of the tribe. So, you know, you spend a significant amount of time 
away from the tribe, from what feels normal. And that might be, in many cases, going out into the wild and spending days and days communing with Mother Nature and really, you know, requesting what it is that we were born onto this world to do. So what do you mean by we were born into this world to do? Yes, there's an idea, there's a concept which I fully believe in and fundamentally feel like for me, this is my truth, is that the earth dreamed us into being. And this concept, I mean, the earth dreamed us into being. Just for a moment, if we all just imagined that you were not here by coincidence, that you were literally chosen by the earth to come into this place, into this time for a really specific purpose. And do we know what that purpose is? Do we, have we really listened to the calling of the earth and what it is that the message or the life um, or the service it is that we're going to bring into the life that we have in this short space and time that we have to deliver? And, um, and that's, therein lies the sense of purpose and power and belonging. And that can also come through rites of passage is, is really witnessing our young people step into that place of, you know, you don't have to have it all figured out now. And nor is this something that is your specific responsibility. This is not about your ego wanting to show up in the world in a specific type of way, because that's how you would like to be seen. The belief that there is something deeper calling you like that invisible thread that you mentioned, there's that line that connects you with the heart of this earth and remembering that we're, we don't come into this world, we're born from this world. Like every single part of our body and our cells is connected with the earth and with the minerals, with the water. Yeah, we are literally daughters and sons and children of this earth planet, this earth being that we call home. Why are we not listening to that inner calling then? Oh, why? (laughs) It's difficult because, you know, if we take our conversation about the differences in girls and boys, you know, as much as we try and live, you know, as a mother, I'm sure you're very conscious of this and, you know, raising girls, you know, where it is that we gender stereotype unconsciously or consciously, uh, whether it's buying pink or buying certain dolls or books or clothes for girls and boys, even the references of what girls and boys do, a lot of this can be very unconscious. And if we take that and expand that into a broader sense, there's there's a lot of conditioning in which we show up into the world as who we think we should be. Now, one of my teachers, one of my quest protection teachers, he made this little joke, and I remember it still, where he, anytime someone would say should, the word should, he would say, did you just should yourself again? And I really catch myself now every time I say I should do something. Who is that based on? What is that based on? Is it my culture? Is it learning from my parents, from my peers? Um, So what are the things in which we feel like we do because it's determined by an outside force or what is that inside force that earth wisdom that old old wild knowing that is within you which is really just the earth speaking through you that's the voice of purpose and belonging and and i feel like all of us at some point in our life has 
touched on that. It's challenging when you get a sense of what it is that your true purpose and your calling is. And yet the external world is framing you to show up in a certain way because that is what is accepted. This is how we want to see you, Donna. We don't, we don't want to see you go off in that way because that's not who I know you to be. And so sometimes rites of passage and that, that sense of listening to that deep wild wisdom is terrifying because it might mean that we lose whatever it is that we've constructed around us. We might lose our friends. You know, what if our family rejects us because we've actually started to listen to the truth within. So I think sometimes for a lot of people, there's a lot of fear around, you know, listening to that quiet voice that they've probably heard for a little, a little while and choosing not to, because it would mean transforming what their life looks like at the moment. Can you share your personal story? Because when I asked you why you do what you do, you told me that you basically don't have a choice because Mm. then you'll be the most miserable person. Mm. Um, What was that moment? Were you answering to the external forces and one day you just thought, hang on, this is not the life that I want to live. What was your process? That's a really good question. Um, You know, my journey hasn't, hasn't really been as dramatic as say, and it's, it's a narrative, it's a story, which I feel like is, is very true for a lot of people in Hong Kong or, you know, dense urban cities where, you know, we go down the path of getting into a good university, doing well with our grades, and um, we come out and maybe we've got a pretty decent job at a law firm or a bank account or, you know, something that's going to give us that sense of financial security and, you know, almost a sense of, pride and and a sense of class and going down this corporate route which for a lot of people is is very true and very real and and we're not bashing that whatsoever but it, it's a very common story that we have here in Hong Kong it's a very narrow narrative right yes and as a result people go down this path and maybe realize somewhere down the line that this isn't for them and then take a little bit of a, you know, a detour, whether maybe they start their own business, maybe they change career, maybe they go traveling for a year because there's that sense of, oh, there's something missing here. So that's a story that I hear a lot of in Hong Kong. I never did that. (laughs) I never went down the corporate route, probably because I was too stubborn. (laughs) I think, you know, it's one of those traits. I was born an earth ox. So I've got double stubbornness in me. (laughs) I think from a very young age, I was criticized for my stubbornness and my sensitivity. And now I see those, those traits and those characteristics as being lifesavers because what it meant was that I never compromised what felt right for me. And, and it's always guided me into being in roles and jobs where it felt like this is where I needed to be at the moment. And when that no longer felt aligned, then I knew that it was time for a shift. And I was never really always very conscious of that, but I did always know that as soon as something didn't feel right, I couldn't be there any longer. There was, I couldn't fake it, which faking it is, I might add, a skill in itself, which I'm not very good at, but sometimes it's, it's good to fake it. Was there a mentor or a teacher that made an influence on you during those formative years? Honestly, Mama Gaia. I think having human mentors is hugely important and and something, you know, in speaking to the rites of passage uh, experiences is 
essential in guiding, especially young people, but for any of us going through rites of passage through a whole life, it's massively important and supportive to have a mentor guide us. I don't feel I had a human being guide me in, in that way. But in looking back now as an adult and the experiences that I had as a young person, I, ha- I always had access to, to nature. And I would always ask, you know, whether it was consciously or unconsciously, you know, what do I do? Where do I go? And I always, no, I, I, I don't always, I didn't always receive an answer, but but there was always this knowing of this was a safe place to go to and, and a welcoming space. And no matter how I showed up, you know, when I walked into, into a forest or into a river, I would never be rejected. And I'd always be loved for wherever it is it was that I was there in the, in the moment. So for me, Mother Nature is, is my most significant mentor. I've had mentors since then. But yes, she's... She's the the greatest one. And I think the mentors that I've had since then, they are the ones that guide me to remembering my connection with nature. Because really it takes it takes the guru out of it. You know, mm. there's there's no putting anybody on a pedestal, there's no raising somebody above yourself. It's really just remembering that we're all connected. And I think the best teachers, the best mentors, the best guides. Uh, remind us of our of our own innate power and intuition, which is rooted in the earth. That is so true. Going back to us as a society now, right? So our rites of passage means that we're forced to separate from the world mm. that we knew that was yes. true to what we don't know. Can we talk about what comes after the separation? The next stage of rites of passage is what we call a threshold or, you know, that really icky in between phase. You're not here and you're not there yet. This is where we are now. Totally. And it's interesting because for a lot of people in going through a rites of passage, we're aware that, okay, so we're leaving. We're separating from our family now. We're leaving the tribe and we're going off into, into this wilderness state. And we're aware that we're going to go into that weird, ah, oh, I don't know where I am. Am I, am I a child? Am I a teenager? Am I an adult yet? There's that weird, eh, and it's really uncomfortable. And yet for most of us in the world at the moment, we've been thrust into this rites of passage, into this initiation, into this separation. And for a lot of us, we're not prepared. We didn't know that this was coming. And then also there's uncertainty in how long this is going to be. And this is, you know, where the ickiness comes from is that essentially the, the best and the easiest metaphor to kind of look at this is through a caterpillar's lens. You know, you have the caterpillar that starts his life off in the way that it does. And, you know, whether or not it's aware, it comes into uh, the stage where it's like, okay, time to make myself the cocoon. Now, inside the cocoon, the caterpillar enters, but it has no idea what it's going to become and no idea how long it's going to take. And what's incredible is that the cells within the cocoon that actually transform the caterpillar into the butterfly are called the imaginative cells. Nice. Yes. And so there is that uncertainty of what is going to come out on the other side. When is it going to come out? And 
am I going to like it? Do I want to know what the world is going to look like and how I'm going to be, who I'm going to be at the end of this? Because that's in the same way of that transformation that we were talking about of our own personal rites of passage. You know, what if everything that we knew to be true is a complete illusion? And that means that we have to start all over again. And for a lot of people, it's like, don't tell me that. And, you know, I just want to go back to normal. But one of the most powerful uh, reminders that I've read since the, the coronavirus pandemic has really started is, yes, we will feel this rush on this urge to go back to what is normal because that's comfortable. We know that place. It, it feels nice. We've worked hard to get to wherever it is that maybe we, we feel like, yeah, okay, this, this is good. This is a life that I'm working towards. But really, this is an opportunity and a time, like you said, to really reflect on the parts of normal that we actually don't want to go back to. You know, it's an opportunity to step into that cocoon and just say, okay, let's, let's see what comes out the other side. What can ease the pain of this discomfort during this in-between stage? Because it's really uncomfortable for many of us. It is. For me, in this in-between zone, it's highlighting a lot of unseen or unconscious privilege that we have. Trying hard not to look at it from a, from a point of view of, you know, have and have not. But, you know, at the moment where I'm sitting in a room where I feel safe, I feel comfortable, I have a home when I turn on the tap, I have water, touch wood, I have my health at the moment. And for a lot of people, this is not their reality. And so in order for us to be able to even see this as an opportunity as growth or learning or expansion and, and taking this experience as a way to transcend or understand our life in a different way, we need to have our basic safety and needs met. And for a lot of people, that's not the case. And, and for them, it's, it's just a case of survival. How do I get through this? How do I get through the next 30 minutes? And that's a reality. And so, you know, it's important to, to understand and to see our realities as yes, they're, they're common. We're experiencing this virus in the world and how it's changing the space. And yet there will be those of us that will feel this in, in a very different way. So going back to your question of what can ease the pain? Gosh, I can only speak for myself. My experience of being in, in this, in this lockdown, in this new society, in this new way of being it's been reminding myself that to just let the feelings come. You know, when I feel the discomfort, it's very easy for me to go and distract myself. And my favorite distraction is food. And it's very easy to, when you're staying at home all the time, to just go, you know, and check the fridge, open the door and see what's there. You know, television, watching YouTube or whatever it is, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole list of distractions that, that we can offer up people as coping mechanisms. And sometimes it's okay to just cope. And I think the reminder really is just that it's okay. It's okay to feel like absolute shit today. It's okay if you want to create, you know, it's okay if 
You don't. It's okay if you're having an argument with your partner. It doesn't mean that just because you're not thriving in this situation that there's something wrong with you. And we discussed this before about this whole idea of like, don't buy into the productivity porn. You don't need to just like, oh, this is the best time for me to go and learn new language or I'm going to like revamp my whole website. That's the pressure that we put on ourselves and that society and social media, you know, all of that witnessing like, oh God, everyone's learning a new skill. And like, you know, I can literally, all I can do is fry an egg and that's the best thing that I did all day and that's okay. So just let yourself feel everything that you need to feel and then let it go because it's the stuck, it's the stuckness and the feeling of resistance that can trap our emotions in our body and literally be held, held there and stored in our bodies as trauma. I remember when you said after the in-between, right, we, we question, are we fitting in? Are we enough? Or are we too much? I think the thing that really resonated with me was, are we too much? Absolutely. And I think that is especially true for women. You know, I don't, that in, in listening to conversations that I have with, with other female friends and then also male friends, and this is not the case for all and, you know, really in avoiding trying to perpetuate female stereotypes. I, I also want to be really conscious that we're not perpetuating male stereotypes that the narrative of being too much is often something that we're teaching to young girls, even to a point where I remembered, um, or I was watching a, a movie and, and in the movie was a young boy that was teasing a girl and, you know, on the playground and it's just like, you know, taking her bag or taking her, her scarf away or something. And the lesson there that an adult had shared to the young girl was that, oh, it's because he likes you. And yes, you know, what an innocent thing to say and what a, what a really sweet way to frame that his behavior was actually a sense of affection. And yet we grow up with these unconscious ways in which we feel like when it is, a, you know, a female and a male dynamic, that if a male is rude to us or verbally or physically abuses us, that might mean that he likes me because of the ways that we play and interact as, as young children. But yes, you know, the, the idea that how dare we want and need and yearn for more than we have. It's one of the biggest practices that I have is gratitude and to remind myself to be grateful. And yet I was also reminded that gratitude can also be a really great distraction away from grief, you know, because we are grieving. We are in a place of loss at the moment, whether or not it's a loss of life or a family member or our health, or if it's a loss of uh, the world that we once knew or the life that we thought that we wanted, but no longer want. Do you think this in between now is actually a griefing period for a lot of us? Absolutely. In, in some cultures in Native America, North America, the word uh, or the translation or another understanding of a particular rites of passage called Vision Quest is actually known as the little death. And it's the idea that when you, when you go on this rites of passage, when you go on your Vision Quest and you spend you know, a number of days, uh, and it, it varies you know, from 
tradition to tradition and lineage, but um, spent a number of days out in the wild in communion with, with the natural world. And the idea and the remembering is that you've, there's a part of you that's died. And so the person that comes back from this wild place is no longer the person who left. And the importance of the rites of passage is that the village, the tribe that you come back to witnesses you coming back as the, as the person that you are, as this being that stepped into this new role. And we continue to do that throughout our life. It's not like you've done, you know, one rites of passage and, and you're like, okay, good, I'm done for the rest of my life. You know, it's a continual search and refining of this purpose, you know, that the earth has dreamed us into being for, you know, really what's going to come from our experience of this initiation and this fasting from whatever it is that we knew to be true is how we're going to be received on the other side. You know, are we going to be witnessed into stepping into this new skin, which often feels very shaky and very sensitive. And, you know, there might be some shame that we experience around how we, how, how we spent our time, how we treated others, how we were to ourselves, how we were to our bodies. And maybe there might be a lot of new excitement, but to remember that this is a collective experience. And so how is it that we want to be received and witnessed in stepping back through the threshold as this new person? Well, that's really interesting. I think which part of myself am I going to choose to let it die and leave behind? Well, maybe you don't get to choose. Oh, I don't get to choose. And maybe that's the painful part. And, and in my personal experience and my rites of passage and my vision quest, I, I wasn't even aware of what died. And some people don't when they go through vision quest or rites of passage, you know, they go back into, into their life and you're like, okay, I've just done this massive thing, this massive rites of passage. But I'm going back to, to the job that I, that I used to have. And, you know, my, my husband or my wife is still there. My children are still here. So it's like, okay, what's changed? It can often feel very, very minute and very microscopic. And the part of us that we've either chosen or unconsciously has, has died and let go and kind of decomposed down back into the earth, it's a part of us that probably no longer served us and and that is at least at this point no longer going to be in service i'll give you an example after my vision quest what i noticed to be different in me although i didn't i wasn't a, a different person you know i didn't come back and people were like who are you but what i noticed had shifted was that i had let go of guilt and shame in and feeling like I didn't deserve what, what I felt worthy of. And for me, my experience coming back was, I guess, could be seen as quite dramatic. You know, I left my job. I started my own business through Kimbali. And so that in itself is already like, whoa. But it doesn't mean that everyone who goes through a rites of passage is going to leave their job or, you know, leave their partner or move countries you know, the subtle changes really were for me was that when I handed in my resignation, the person that I was before would have agonized over how I was going to share this information. How am I going to tell my boss? How am I going to communicate that I have to leave? And the nervousness and the anxiety that would come up around like, oh God, you know, I'm, I'm leaving them. I'm abandoning this, this organization that I, you know, work so hard for and with. 
the difference when I came back out of Vision Quest was that I didn't feel that agony. It just became this sense of rightness and I didn't feel the shame that I know would have felt before. What do you mean about the shame? I didn't feel shameful for asking for what I felt worthy for. And that was the big shift was that in the past, my pattern was that I would feel guilty for saying, I, I want more than this and that I want to work towards this vision that is feeling more and more certain for me. And after Vision Quest, it just became, it became, not that it wasn't right before, but all of the noise just melted away and it became no longer. And it was so subtle that I almost didn't realize it until someone actually pointed that out for me. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have done that before. The little death doesn't have to be so dramatic. It can be really, really subtle and change your life in, in the sweetest and the most gentlest and sometimes the most quiet of ways. And the shame part is really interesting that you brought up because there are a lot of women who are feeling extreme shame with eating mm. out of boredom, not exercising enough, mm. people's gray hair growing out, and the mm-hmm. fake eyelashes falling off. You know, and again, a lot of the, the ways in which the, the shame comes about is are these socially constructed norms of that we need to look a certain way or behave a certain way. Gosh, like what we were like you were saying to you earlier about how is it that you choose to show up in, in a meeting and how we're so quickly judged by what you're wearing, how your hair is, how your, what your skin color is, what your accent is like. Like these are, these are all ways in which that we frame our world and we construct it with these, you know, the scaffolding around this is, these are the people that I want to surround myself with and associate myself with. And anything outside of that or outside of what feels safe and right for me, I'm going to put in the other corner. And so, you know, we, we don't, we don't do that and we don't deal with that. And so another way of understanding what vision quest allows us or allows an opportunity for is really to come back to what it was, who it was that we were always supposed to be before the world got its hands on us, because we've all been influenced by what it is that we see in the outside world. And the earth is calling for us to come back to who it was that we, well, that she dreamed us into being. And it's a challenging and a terrifying and an important quest that I feel like we're rising to that now because we've gotten a sense of that initiation. And some of us aren't prepared. And some of us will see this as an opportunity to to take it to to the next level of what another initiation might be but it's a journey whatever it is there's no end but the thing is we have such a limited vocabulary of who mm. we can be we have constructed a society where we don't nurture all possibilities yes. we pigeonhole all of us even in terms of physicality we have to look a certain way i've always said I wish I grew up with women that were all different shapes and sizes, different colors, and be confident mm. about themselves. I mm. wish I grew up with that. 
But mm. I grew up with a very narrow view of what beauty is. I believe it was Carl Rogers who who said, you know, the, the interesting paradox is that the moment that we accept ourselves as all that we are, that is when we're allowed to be more and to let go of those expectations and expand beyond what we thought was possible. It is very limiting, the the view on which or the opportunities and, and the doors in which we feel like we can walk through as children, as young adults, as full-grown adults of what is acceptable and what is viable and what is realistic. I just, I can't, you know, even count the number of times people said to me, that's, that's not realistic. <laughs> and yet we must not ignore that this is the reality that of the world that we live in. You know, we're not trying to challenge and change everything that we know to be true at, at this moment because, you know, shattering our entire lives is, is not the goal of rites of passage or initiations. It's really for us to be able to see where it is that we, we truly do feel tied down and what are the, you know, what are some of the ropes that we can you know, either consciously or or unconsciously let go of to see, you know, what would happen if we just expand there a little bit, you know, to, to come into that old and ancient world wisdom that we all hold within us and still have mastery of our emotions and our bodies and our state in an urban place. Because the truth is at this point, or at least in the next 10 to 50 years who knows what's what's going to happen but you know we don't all live in indigenous communities we don't all live you know on the land and we don't all know how to tend and cultivate to of of the earth and um you know live in small communities and villages you know and that's not necessarily the the end goal or the agenda or objective for a lot of people in welcoming the diverse we have to also remain open to the world that we are in at the moment and not shut that off as well, because that would just be the complete opposite of expansion and that diversity that, that we're talking about. We have to be relevant in our environment, right? Absolutely. Can you talk about Totem? Mm. So I've been very blessed to have spent a lot of time in Australia over the last few years and have found teachers there that I really resonate with and have had the ability and the opportunities to to go back and continue learning from them. And one of the experiences that I had in learning and deepening some of my bushcraft skills was meeting Uncle Mark. Um, And Uncle Mark is uh, an Aboriginal elder. And, um, And he came in and spoke to us about totems. And my understanding of totems at that point was like a totem pole, you know, when I'd, I'd see them in cartoons or movies and people would refer to totem poles. And and he really transformed, well, it shifted the way that I saw that and understood in the way he explained, imagine if each of us were born with a totem. And this totem, it could be an animal, it could be a stream, it could be a type of rock, it could be a place, a tree, And this totem, this being that we were born and connected with, this would be 
the responsibility and the stewardship that we would have to know and to connect with, with this being as much as possible. And so, for example, you know, Donna, your totem might be the zebra. We've talked about this and your connection with, with zebras. And so anytime that anyone would want to know anything about zebras, I would be like, oh, you know, you guys, you've got to go to Donna because Donna knows everything about zebras. And you might have more than one totem. But if each of us came into this earth with a totem animal or a plant or a bush or a river or a rock, and we all represented that being with that love and reverence and celebration, how different the world would be. And, you know, really bringing us back into that connection and remembering that we are an earth community and that we are stewards of this earth. We are children of this earth and that the rocks are our brothers and the trees are our sisters and the lake is our aunt just remembering this kinship that is so alive and present everywhere and to kind of just bring that into more awareness. What is your totem? Mm, one of mine is the snake. What does that mean? Well, I, it was interesting because I um, was having a conversation with a woman after we met with Uncle Mark and, and he'd taken us on a bit of a walk through the bush and was showing us all the different wild medicines and wild food. And we were just, you know, at the very, very back of the group. And she said, you know, what is your totem? And I said, oh, it's for sure the snake. And I knew that because I, ever since I was young, I'd always dreamed about snakes. I'd always loved, I was fascinated with snakes. It was always this really healthy balance of fascination and fear. This really fine line of, I'm terrified, but I can't look away. It's just so, yeah, there's something really alluring about snakes for me. And so when I told this woman that, that, you know, I thought mine was, was for sure the snake, she was like, ah, and and the question that came out of her mouth, I thought was so irrelevant and so bizarre at the time. Uh, And she said, oh, so do you always have to tie your hair up? And I was like, huh? (laughs) I said, yes. Okay. Strange question. And she said, well, it's funny because my partner, her totem is also the snake and she, in embodying the snake, she actually shaved all of her hair off because in the same way that as the snake, which is so representative of transformation and shedding that continual shedding of the skin and releasing that, what, you know, no longer serves us. It was the same feeling that when she had her hair down and in her face, she needed to just pull it away in the same way that the skin pulls away from, from the snake's head. And in that moment, I understood why she asked if I always had to tie my hair up, which I always do. It's, you know, oh, if wow. we think about the connection that animals have in, in communication through their hair, especially mammals, you know, how dogs, for example, you know, when they're communicating that they're angry, their hair will stand on end. If you're a night creature and you're walking through the forest or the jungle, a lot of the, the hair and the whiskers would be the indicators of, oh, there's, you know, something nearby. And I'd always felt massively overwhelmed if I had my hair down. I could never have my hair in my face. And so growing up when I had, you know, fringe and, and bangs, it would like drive me crazy. And so in understanding that, the feeling that I was really trying to 
my whole life trying to embody was just this pulling away of this hair in my face. It was the same as the snake in that continual shedding. And so two days after I had that conversation with her, I got back to Hong Kong and then I shaved half of my head. And it was really an honor of the snake in saying, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm letting go of that. Yeah. And, you know, working towards convincing my uh, partner that it's going to be a good idea that I shave all of my hair off one day. (laughs) (laughs) He's still not sold. (laughs) And knowing your totem or one of your totems, how Mm. has that shaped you the way you make choices and lead your life? You know, I think just having that be much more, much more in my consciousness and my awareness and, and, and really being able to have these conversations in the community that I did have in Australia, having conversations like this and really empowered me and gave me the safety and the opportunity to speak of these beings as more than, you know, just animals. And, and you know, our English language in particular can be so limiting in how we view the the animate earth and and the livingness the aliveness of the earth and the beings you know if we talk about a tree then we say that tree or it uh, if we're talking about a rock or a river and in a lot of indigenous cultures the the way that you speak about a river and a rock is is with the same reverence and celebration as as we would speak uh, to our elders in in Chinese culture with the utmost respect. And yet we don't do that for the more than human world. And so having this totem, it really brings to to life what it is that we probably already know. And I'm sure, you know, people are listening, they're already like, oh yeah, I know what my totem would be. And, you know, given that permission to to geek out, to, to really be crazy about something and to have permission to love something that much that you can go and learn about it and study it and have experiences with this totem, whatever it may be. And remembering that naming the animal is not necessarily knowing or naming the tree just because you know the species of the tree doesn't mean you actually know the tree. Now I want to move on to the myth of separation, especially during these kind of times. It's really easy to draw a boundary line, especially now we of being isolated and whatnot. And I remember you telling me you're going to Saigon into the restaurant and because you were not wearing a mask, they basically just shoved you out like the plague mm. and, and giving you that sense of you're not welcomed, right? Mm. Do you want to talk about that separation? Because I think that's really massive because we are really all one. We're all so interconnected. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's it's really similar in the experiences that I've that I've felt like I've had in this particular time. It's really similar to memories or or for for what those of us who can relate to a sense of injustice and if we take bullying for example, uh if you speak to people who have been the victims of bullies either you know, in childhood or in, in adulthood, they remember the experience of being bullied, yes. But the trauma and what remains and the shame is actually coming from the people who stood by and did nothing. And so I feel like this is a really important time to remember that, is that 
we're, we're afraid and that's okay. We're, we're allowed to be afraid and we're allowed to feel uncertain. You know, there is a lot of fear and there's a lot of it perpetuated in the media and in, and within our communities that I can very distinctly remember the, the handful of times in which I've been made to feel exactly like you described. It was like, get out. You know, like you, you really are the plague kind of thing. And it really, it was a very different, it was almost the opposite sense of walking through Occupy Central all those years ago and that sense of solidarity and camaraderie and we're in this together. Equally, I remember the, the times in which people showed kindness and consideration and care in the way that I feel like wouldn't necessarily have been as highlighted if we weren't going through this crazy time in the world right now. But actually what you, what you shared about that sense of separation reminds me of something that one of my favorite authors uh, and storytellers, uh, Martin Shaw, wrote. And I'll just read, read a little bit here. Um, so he's referring to this Siberian myth in that when you want to hurt somebody, you crawl into their tent and you close their smoke hole. So if you imagine like, you know, if they have a, a teepee style. Um, and when you close the smoke hole, that's when you hurt them because that way God can't see them. If you close the smoke hole, you break the connection to the divine world of mountains and rivers and trees. If you close the smoke hole, we become mad. Close the smoke hole and we are possessed by ourselves and only ourselves. Close the smoke hole and you only have your neurosis for your own company. And, you know, this myth is um. so true right now because we are closing our smoke hole. You know, we don't have to, no one, people are doing it for us and we're also doing it to ourselves. But being aware of where we are closing that smoke hole and, and shutting down that connection either with our community, with with our connection with the natural world, with ourselves, you know, that is where a lot of that unconscious hurt and that pain can come from. How is it that it looks for us to, to keep that relationship open? It's going to be different for, for everybody, but being aware of when we are closing that smoke hole. Oh, I love that. Mm. <laughs> so good. Mm. So good. All right, Jasmine, we're going to close this interview with a few rapid questions Ooh, okay yes what is the book that you have gifted the most or have left the strongest impression on you okay the the one that's coming up it's a fiction and it's called the art of racing through the rain it's since been made into a film i haven't watched the film and i refuse to <laughs> as an animal lover it actually transformed the way that i viewed animals and that much of the book is written from the sense of a dog and oh. um yeah and so it was it was really incredibly touching and also really eye-opening in the in the world of humans that like we've been talking about that a lot of it we've become unconscious to and seeing it from a dog's perspective can often be quite confronting and quite revealing fill in the blank love is everywhere what is something that you would want to learn more about? Hmm, <gasps> indigenous food. What is the best lesson that your dad or your mom taught you? They facilitated by allowing me to have a wild connection with nature. 
What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Oh, gosh. Be kind to yourself. And lastly, what closing thought would you like to share that could inspire our audience? (gasps) Mm. Well, I read this quote by Ram Dass actually this morning, and I'll share this quote by Ram Dass. So he says, I was no longer needing to be special because I was no longer so caught up in my puny separateness that I had to keep proving that I was something. I was part of the universe, like a tree is, or like grass is, or like water is. Thank you so much, Jasmine. This has been such a wonderful conversation, really food for the soul. Oh, thank you, Donna. It's been a pleasure to be able to share and super therapeutic for me just, you know, to remember, remember all of this as we, we have it within us. It's just sometimes it goes into hiding a bit. Where can people find you? Um, so you can find me through my website, www.kembali.org. Yeah. And, or on social media at Kembali HK. Uh, Kimbali is actually an Indonesian word and it means to return in this sense of coming back to a sense of home with the earth. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Donna. Check out Jasmine and the soul-inspiring work that she's doing in Hong Kong at kimbali.org, K-E-M-A-L-I dot O-R-G. Jasmine and I would love to hear what's the single biggest insight that you're taking away from this conversation. Visit my website, interested.blog, to access the show notes or leave a comment on my Interested Podcast Facebook page. You can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend.